Yo, 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 welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Isaiah K Podcast. Welcome back. So, um, I haven't talked to you guys since last week. Last week was obviously 2022. So, this is the first episode of 2023. Yes, this is the first episode of 2023. Um, <clears throat> hoping for a, a really good year um, on this podcast. You guys, uh, I would say this last year, really appreciate you guys last year. You guys did a great job, hell of a job expanding, broadening the audience and so forth. Um, but we're looking for even a, a better, a bigger and better 2023 um, in terms of this podcast and so forth. And honestly, you guys know, you guys should probably know what we're talking about. We're going we're gonna to be starting with the DeMar Hamlin situation. Uh, a crushing, heartbreaking situation. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, touch bases on that. Um, but you guys know our intro. I'm your humble and highly favorite host, Isaiah Kit of the Isaiah Kit Podcast. Welcome back. Shouts out to everyone listening. You could have chose anywhere else. You could have chosen any other podcast. You could have been choosing to do anything else, and you may be doing something else. But you're also listening to me. So. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, Shouts out to all the first-time listeners. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. It's 2023. You should stay here. You should remain here. Um, and if you are a regular listener, if you listen routinely to this podcast, big, big ups to you. Big shout-out to you. So um, let's get into it. Let's let's um, <clears throat> let's um get into it because I want to talk about the DeMar Hamlin situation and obviously uh, what transpired. I tell you guys what I was doing as I was watching it transpire and, um, and unfold. But then um, we're going to we're going to shift gears. But I do I, like it would be remiss to me if I didn't start with this. And obviously, <clears throat> sad situation. This is a very sad situation. The situation that I think a majority of us have not really seen. I've never seen. I mean, I've been watching football. You guys know I'm a sports fanatic. I'm a football fanatic. I love the NFL. I love college football. Um, I've never seen nothing like this. Uh, the scenes that from Monday Night Football, never seen nothing like it. Never seen nothing like it. And I would just say prayers to DeMar Hamlin and his health and his family, his friends, his loved ones, and so forth. I send my prayers to them. Um, I know there's been over the past couple of days, there's been some, um, I would say, positive news. Uh, I, I think just last night, um, it was reported that DeMar Hamlin, he uh, he's making some 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 pretty good significant strides, positive strides uh, in terms of his health. And, you know, he's showing some type of movement um, and so forth. So that's 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 a positive. That's a plus, And that's good. That's good. Um, so yeah, I, I just want to get that out the way. Prayers to his family, his loved ones, his friends, himself, um, and his well his health and his well-being. Now, I think there's a couple things I really want to tackle. And I'm gonna for one of these major things, I'm gonna take a different approach. An, an approach and something a conversation <clears throat> that I don't think is being had enough. I haven't I, I haven't seen a lot of people have this conversation, but I, I'm gonna get to it. Uh, I'm gonna just ease us into it. Demar Hamlin. Um, I'm sure everyone know. Even if you're not even even if you're not even like a sports fan, this story was reach and it was just it was more it became bigger than just a regular football game a regular football injury it was life or death 
Um, I will say, like, watching that game on Monday Night Football, then seeing how that transpired, automatically, they, for me, with my, for me, there were telltale signs that this was a little bit different. I remember the Ryan Sage year. Ryan Sage, that was really, that was, that was a, that was a tough one to watch too. But this one felt a little bit different. Um, the CPR team came out. The Amalams was immediately out there. Both benches, both sidelines were cleared. Um, it it this this had a different feel to it. You could tell. Like if you was watching the game live time, you could tell this had this had a really, really different feel and different look towards it. Um at this the injury happened, it occurred at 855. I think if I'm not mistaken, and I I can stand to be corrected because I don't have the times in front of me, but I know the injury occurred on at 855. I don't I think he was I think Hamlin had made it to the Amblams and was exiting by 9.30-ish around that time. I'm, I'm so sorry. I apologize for not having the, the pinpoint direct time. But I know the injury occurred at 8.55. Um, it, it was still in the first quarter. And people were asking me, like, how did it happen? Like, And it's it's not a matter of, like, the hit, in the, but it's, like, where – it's the type of hit. It's it's just simultaneously the timing, and it's just bad timing. It's bad timing simultaneously, and T. Higgins T. Higgins should not be at fault for it. Also, you know, let's keep T. Higgins and lifted because I've I've been seeing weird people, weird things, people blaming T. Higgins, and no, it was simply, it was a simply bang bang routine play like. You know, drop back, quarterback drops back, receiver catches it, tries to get some yards after the catch, and you know, there's a gang tackle. There, there's there's a couple, there's multiple tacklers, and Hamlin just the way he, you know, the way he tackled and the timing of it, it just it's just a bad, bad situation. But so that's it's heartbreaking to see um just like we we pivot and we lose focus of the main thing and we can't agree on anything i mean as a society as a country we can't agree on nothing nothing at all even with such a heartbreaking story like this the serious the severity of this this situation with demar hamlin and his health and his well-being we have different perspectives which i don't mind i love the uh, like you know Bring on the different opinions and the different perspectives and the different outlooks. But I feel like then that leads we, – we often – we get out of control. It, the, the conversation spirals out of control, and we lose, we lose, you know, sight of the main thing. We can't keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is DeMar Hamlin, his health and his situation and his well-being, right? That, that, that's the main thing. That's, that's, what, that's what we all should be focused on. So a discussion or – Something that just hasn't been mentioned enough in the last few days, in the previous days, since this whole, since this tragedy has happened, and we're all praying, and we're all, we're, we're all looking out and looking over Demar Hamlin and his family and his loved ones, right? Well, Demar Hamlin was only twenty-four years old, right? His contract was worth one hundred eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, and plus he had a hundred sixty thousand dollar bonus. He's only played two years. 
He's only played two years in this league. And you guys might be wondering, like, okay, Isaiah, what does that mean? What is the significance of that? Well, in order to be a vested player, and you have to play at least three to four years, essentially. Like, to receive these pinchings, to receive certain health care, um, this is all the NFL's policy. This is all the NFL disability policies. You guys can go, this is this is researchable, this is Googleable. <laughs> this is a new word, Googleable. You like you can find these things. You gotta be, you gotta play, I think, like three years and three games to even be eligible for a certain pension. You have to play three to four years to get certain benefits from the NFL in terms of health care after retirement. It's quite insane. It's quite insane. And you know, the NFL. I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure that Demar Hamlin and his and you know his family, they they I'm sure all the prayers that they have been receiving, they're appreciative of it. But what happens when Demar Hamlin's mother has where there's the possibility where his mother ha, has to look into her son's eyes, and he possibly might might need extensive care for the rest of his life. What is the NFL going to do? And I know the NFL is like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll look out for him. Well, are you really? Because I look at some of these. I, granted, you know, I look at the outlook for him and DeMar Hamlin and his situation. Well, let's just take a look at the NFL disability pro- policies. Because once upon a time, the, the policy, you, you could get twenty two, you could get up to $22,000 per month. Now, the last CBA, they lowered it to $4,000. Why? Why? After doing some more research, this was shocking. But the league has their own private board that reviews all different aspects of their with their own doctors, their own specialists. And get this, the NFL, they can deny they can deny you benefits, even if Social Security, our government, deems you to be permanently disabled. The league can still take over, oversee it, and deny you of certain benefits. They can still deny you of certain benefits. The whole CTE scandal, right? We, you know, we, we, the NFL is always talking about the betterment of the players, the betterment of the players. We're trying to help player health, help player safety. Well, since the whole CTE debacle and the whole settlement, only 6% of cases have been paid. And then there's a there's a, there's sixty percent of claims that are quali- that have qualifying diagnosis of CTE, but they have yet to be paid. And the pension we have to make, you know, okay, the pension that you have that you get, well, Demar Hamlin has to wait until he's fifty five. But even that went down to fifty six hundred dollars a month to now three thousand dollars a month. This was all agreed upon in the last CBA where essentially I'm just reading I guess gave you guys three to four policies I'm sure there's more and I'm sure if you if you guys do some more intensive detail and work and certain like research you can see that okay the player like the NFL you know with the whole rule changes and they're trying to do whatever it they can to better for the betterment of player safety and player health and player protocol. Like they're 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 trying all these new things. We're you know taking out you know what we're, you we're trying to 
take out the risk of these concussions and CTE and all of these other situations and injuries that could be uh, that could hurt life after football. Right. Well, look at the policies. It's like, well, are you really you're lowering everything in terms of the price like you can get 22,000 you used to be able to get once that at you get $22,000 per month last CBA they lowered it to 4,000 why why did they do that and you know why the NFL may say hey we're going to take care of DeMar Hamlin but are they really are they really i don't know are they really because you look cuz he's not a vested player and this can all be changed for the next CBA the next collective bargaining agreement but the the most recent one just happened like a year and a year and a half ago like it hasn't even been two years since the last cba so that 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 that's time that's gonna take time and people don't want to talk about these situations but we have to talk about these situations especially right now this is this is this is the best time to talk about it because if we don't it's like it just gets it gets pushed under the rug, I'm sure a lot of you guys probably didn't know these NFL policies existed. Probably you guys probably didn't know that you had to play three to four years to be a vested player. So we we may all think the NFL is going to do the right thing, but <clears throat> I just look at the NFL's business practice practices and their business acclimate, and it's about the money. It's about the money and doing what's best for the NFL. Uh, and like that time and time and time and time and time again, it shows itself. It shows itself on its head that the NFL is about the NFL and the betterment of the NFL and the betterment of the NFL and their resources and their money. Um, that's just what it is. We look at the owners. I mean, I, like I said, hey, owners, I'm not, I'm not mad at owners getting their money. I'm not mad at that, but. We look at these owners built like these corporations. These are multi-billion-dollar entities that they are owning. The most at risk for these owners. The worst thing that can happen to them when they go to a game is their team losing. That's the worst thing. <laughs> That's the worst thing. And even when their team lose. If it's like it, it, they still get their money. So they get their money's worth. So that's the worst thing. That's like if we're talking about capping out, what's the worst thing? What's the worst case scenario for owner any given Sunday? Oh, their team just losing. Right. That's 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 the worst case scenario. We look at players, though, like it's it, it, I know it's become a bit cliche and we hear it all the time. But football's a dangerous sport. And these guys are literally laying their they're putting their bodies and their lives on the line um, for the betterment of our entertainment. And like I said, I love I, I like I love the NFL just as much as the next person. I love the NFL just like y'all love it. But boy, we got we there is some alarming questions that come into play in turn when you look at the NFL's business practices and acclimate. Their business practices are very alarming. And it, 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 there's a lot of red flags. <laughs> when we look at their business practices, there's a lot of red flags. So you ask yourself, okay, yeah, the NFL, they're going to they're gonna try to do the right thing. Roger Goodell, they're going to try to do the right thing. But their policies say otherwise. Their policies don't back up what they're saying. 
at face you can't you can't really take them at face value because okay granted they're doing all what they can do in terms of for the betterment of players safety on the field but what about off the field when okay these they sustain these these life-threatening injuries these these injuries that alter the way how they live after football what happens what happens to those players look at their policies look at the benefits it is a high risk, low reward if we're if for the average NFL player. I'm not talking about the guys that went that go on to make, you know, that go on to have two, three multi-year, hundred million dollar, multi-figured million dollar deals, right? Cool. That ain't everybody. That's not everybody. That's not Demar Hamlin. Demar, as I told you guys, he's not a vested player. And he, like I said, he probably won't play another down. So what happens when Demar Hamlin's mother look at her son and he was living out his dream, but now no longer he needs extensive care for the rest of his life as a possibility? What do the NFL do? What do we look? What what are we looking for the NFL to do? And we can say, oh, it, like the player union, the players union got to be better, but like. Some things is just right and wrong, right and wrong. Like we don't, we like some things don't need a negotiation. <laughs> like the betterment of player safety after retirement, player health after retirement, and the necessity of healthcare that shouldn't have to be negotiated upon. That should just be, I don't know, a human right. <laughs> like that should not be negotiated upon. So. I, I'm. I hope, and like I said, I'm, I'm gonna speak it into existence that that Demar Hamlin, he's gonna be okay, he's gonna recover, and he's gonna be fine. I'm a. I'm gonna speak it into existence, but with the conclusion of that, when Demar Hamlin is okay, when Demar Hamlin does recover, how do the NFL assist him? How do how is the NFL going to assist him? And I know people once, you know, once we find out that he's going to be okay, he's going to be fine, you know what people are going to do? People going to go back to their lives. People going to stop paying as much attention. And people are not going to keep the microscope on the NFL. But we have to keep the mic. We got to we gotta put them. We got to keep them under the microscope. We got to – because everybody's cashing checks. Everybody is getting paid. Everybody that you see talking about the situation, getting paid. NFL still getting paid. Week 18 still happening. NFL playoffs still happening. They're still happening. So they're getting paid. They're getting paid. What happens when DeMar Hamlin is okay? We found out that he's okay. What happens when we found out that he's okay? What happens then? We just go back to our corners. We just go back to what we were doing before the the situation. We got to keep the NFL under the microscope. We have to. We have to. We have to keep the NFL under the microscope and make sure that they live up to what they are saying in front of us. Because... Actions speak louder than words, and there need to be there need to be some action put forward when we're looking at this situation in terms of Demar Hamlin and his well being. We gotta we gotta keep them under the microscope because you ask yourself: Is the NFL really gonna do right by this kid by this by this situation? Are they gonna really do right? Because, as I said, we look at their – he's not eligible for any of their policies, pensions, health care. He's not eligible for none of that. So what happens? I just want to know what happens. And that is the question 
That is a situation. That is a topic. That is a conversation that is not being discussed enough. What happens? Like I said, I'm going to speak it into existence that DeMar Hamlin is going to be okay. But and he's going to recover. But then what happens after that? What happens after that? We got to keep the we got to keep the NFL under the microscope because their business practices, their business acclimate, the way how they go about business, it's very money hungry, it's very money driven, it's very capitalistic. We got to we got to make sure that these players are done right in terms of okay, they they're giving us entertainment, they're meeting all of our criterias. How can we meet their criterias for the betterment of their life? Not just during football, not with, not just when they're playing football, but after football. We'll see. I'll be back after this quick break. All right. So I know that was um that was a pretty heavy topic, uh, but it, it was a topic that needed to be discussed. Um, <clears throat> but so let's move on to the college football playoff recap. And I'll say this: uh, college football was really the playoff games were really good. The semifinals. I know there was some concern that the semifinals over the past several years at times. <clears throat> They tend not to be too competitive uh, at a certain point, but obviously these both of these games lived up um, and they were both competitive. They were ver- both very much competitive. And we're just um, – we evaluate these games. You guys know how we do. But um, let's start with uh, TCU and Michigan. TCU uh, versus Michigan, number two Michigan versus number two – number three TCU. And I'll say this, TCU – all year has been underestimated, underrated um, in terms of how uh, like how dynamic they are as a team. And I swear, Sonny Dykes, first year head coach uh, at TCU, first season at T- TCU, uh, they came into the season unranked. And then about seven, eight weeks in, we get the first college football playoff rankings. They're at number seven. Now, mind you, TCU already had, they were like 7-0. They they had like multiple top twenty five victories. Um, they had a top ten offense, and they had a top ten off passing offense and top ten rushing offense. So they were dynamic, and I just thought them being at seven for the first rankings for the opening inaugural um inaugural uh rankings for the playoffs at seven. I thought that was low. I thought that was low, and I thought it was like it was like some brand bias because they had as they had as good of a resume up up until that point. This is anybody like their resume was really comparable to anybody's in the country. So I'm like, if this was Texas or Oklahoma, they would be no lower than four. They would be at least number four. They would at least they would at least be in the playoff. TCU was an outside looking in the first rankings that came out. Um, eventually they got within the playoff and they haven't they haven't moved since. Now they had the pack, they had the Big 12 championship loss, but they they came in this Michigan game on a mission. You can just tell the vibe and the energy was different. It was really different. Max Duggan played well. Um TCU, they got a little sloppy, they had some turnovers, but for the most part, they played the game on their terms. They played this game on their terms. Um, and that was uh, that was ultimately the biggest key to victory. They got a lead. They kept that league. They never looked back, and they played the game on their terms. Very, very few have the ability 
And up until this point, no one in this country, in the country, could say that they made Michigan, they outplayed Michigan and made Michigan play on their terms. No team can really say that throughout the country. TCU can. So that was an absolute dominant um, and dynamic performance from TCU. Um, they were good situationally. Defensively, they got some two, they got some, they got a couple big stops within the red zone. Um, and every time we felt like there was a momentum shift, or at least I felt that, when there was a momentum shift and it seemed like, okay, here comes Michigan, TCU would just deliver another blow, another dagger that would just extend the lead in and, and it made the it made the game almost just like insurmountable, like the lead just insurmountable to come back from, because that was how hard the blow was that 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 TCU was delivering. It was like a it was like a boxing match. Michigan was that fighter that just kept taking hits, kept taking hits, kept taking hits, and TCU was just landing haymakers. And at some point, you can't keep taking the haymakers. Like no matter how strong that chin is. If you continue, if the other fighter continues to land these haymakers, you're going to drop and fall at some point. At some point. And Michigan just kept taking them, but TCU delivered when they needed to deliver. And I thought they deserved this win. They earned it. The energy was different, and they played the game on their terms. And, for you know, I look at Michigan, I thought, and I know, I know the coaching staff, I know Jim Harbaugh, Probably even the players, they're looking like, damn, back-to-back years in the playoff. And I thought this year in particularly was the best chance for Michigan and Jim Harbaugh to go to the national championship. I thought this was the I thought this was the year. But once they got down and once adversity hit, and once they found like, oh, whoa, they were trailing and they just got punched by TCU, I felt both offensively and defensively. They got a bit antsy and too aggressive, too antsy and too aggressive. And it was a trickle down effect. It was a domino effect from the coaching staff, the play calling, and then the players. The coaching staff, on, like I said, both sides of the football got really, really antsy. And it was like, whoa, like, like they were blitzing too much. Um, and even if you're going to blitz, you got to disguise the blitz. Max Duggan was really good against Michigan's blitz and pass rush. The blitz oftentimes was not getting home. So they got a bit antsy on defense. They were taking some big swings on defense and big chances. They A lot of it didn't really deliver, and it didn't come through for them. And then <clears throat> offensively, Michigan ultimately got away from their bread and butter in terms of their running game. You look at how they were running the football, and they, they, they got some yards on the ground. But they weren't as effective. They weren't as dominant. And that's because they got away from their pool. They got away from their pin and pull schemes. They got away from their bread and butter, which is their pin and pull schemes, where they're they're pulling their tackles, they're pulling their guards. And this is this is how we're gonna dominate. Michigan didn't do that as much. Michigan did not find that a much that much effectiveness at doing that. So I look at the JJ McCarthy, he was forcing throws. The two J.J. McCarthy, two pick sixes. I mean, offensively and defensively, it was hand in hand where they got antsy. They got antsy. Michigan as as a whole got really antsy. And, and in fact, 
they they had two drives within inside the TCU's five yard line. Two drives inside the TCU's five large five yard line, and they came away with zero points. Two times inside the five, zero points. So that's that's a that's two wasted drives with a potential of fourteen points on the board. I just thought out of both games, Georgia and Ohio State, in this game, TCU and Michigan, I felt like Michigan's coaching staff had the most mistakes. Out of the four teams that participated in the playoff, Michigan's coaching staff had the most mistakes. They made the most critical, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking mistakes, some of the most head-scratching mistakes with the play-calling getting away from what made them really successful this year. I mean, I was not a fan of the play call, of the red zone play calling. Like, for instance, the Philly special. Michigan tried to run the Philly special. First, defenses know when it's coming. But then also, the Philly special, it it is perfectly executed and it works and effective against man defense. So Michigan motion at receiver But the DB never moves. He never moves with the motion receiver. So that tells you that's zone. That DB is going to lurk. He's going to sit on the route. And that is their plan. And TCU's playing zone. Well, Michigan, you know, the Philly special, it's a man-beating route. It's a man-beater. It works against man. And some of this is like, hey, play calling, iffy, coaching staff. But then some of this is like, hey, your young quarterback, you're putting your young quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, in some situations where, okay, you know, you motion your receiver. The DB doesn't follow the motion guy. You know this should be a this should be a telltale sign. This is basic, too, where this is zone. This is not going to work. This Philly special, this play is not going to work. We got to kill this play and go to something else because we can't run this play effectively and execute it if they're in zone. And with that DB lurking, he's sitting on that route. It's just little integral details like that where the inability, Michigan's inability to convert these red zone trips into touchdowns ultimately killed them. Like, that's that's what ultimately did it for them. They shot themselves in the foot. Um, and, you know, not converting these, these red zone trips, these red zone drives into touchdowns often kill teams. That's how playoff games are lost. That's how football games in general are lost. You know, instead of getting three, I mean, instead of getting seven, you get three, you settle for three. And, you know, instead of getting seven, sometimes you walk away with no points. Like, I thought Michigan, their play calling from the coaching staff to the play calling to the players, all three of those things were, were they, they, like, they just became antsy, I felt too aggressive and a little bit of arrogant. I thought Mich- Michigan thought they were going to probably just come in here, do what they've been doing the entire year, and they were just going to beat TCU. And it was just going to just go down like that. But it didn't. It didn't. So, I mean, I know T- I know Michigan coaches, the coaching staff, they're looking back at the tape, looking back at the film, and I know they're probably walking away like, well, damn, we – we kind of gave this game away where the two pick sixes, like the fumble in the red zone, we spotted them 21 points. You spotted them 21 right there. And then some blown assignments. I know Michigan, the Michigan coaching staff, they're going to be kicking themselves in the foot because it's like, damn, we, we, 
if we just clean up, if you give us two, three plays back, we win this football game. But TCU will they they will deserve victory in national championship berth for TCU. And um, let's go on to Georgia and Ohio State, where we saw the game, TCU-Michigan game, was great. It was a classic, instant classic. So we like, okay, how is Georgia and Ohio State going to live up to this? And boy, did it ever. Did it ever. Georgia walks away with a one-point victory over Ohio State. And I'll say this before I get into Ohio State and Ryan Day and C.J. Stroud. Georgia, what Kirby Smart is building in Georgia is incredible. They display great championship grit. Their execution in the fourth quarter was just simply stellar, and that's what won them the game. I mean, the execution that we saw from the coaching staff, Kirby Smart, the players, it was absolutely just brilliant to watch. It was it was it was must see TV. Now with Ohio State, I thought stylistically. They've resembled the last team that beat Georgia. Georgia, they, like I said, Georgia, they got some, they got some something really, really brueling that's really good in Georgia right now. But the last team to beat Georgia was a team that could that could really challenge and have their way, quite frankly, with Georgia vertically. And that was, you know, that Alabama team. Obviously, Jameson Williams and those guys, like they vertically. Could they they did they destroy Georgia? That was the last time we saw Georgia lose. So coming into this game, I thought stylistically, Ohio State, they had what it took to beat like they like they have the passing game. They have the best passing game in the country. And that right there, eat going east, west, vertically, that could kill Georgia. That like you're exploiting Georgia's weakness. And I will say this: I thought C.J. Stroud played his best game. His, he played his best collegiate game ever. Uh, obviously, Marvin Harrison Jr. got off to a hot start. Um, Ohio State—they played this game as well as you can play it throughout the first three quarters. Now there was a, there were some standout plays where it ultimately altered this the 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 flow and the tempo and the rhythm of this game. And obviously we can we can point out the timeout, the, the brilliant timeout from Kirby Smart to prevent um Ohio State in the fake punt conversion. We can we can point that out. But I do think the fourth quarter looks a bit different if Marvin Harrison Jr. isn't knocked out. And here we go. I get into the targeting call or the the, the, the targeting that was called but then got reversed. Targeting is so subjective. And it's and this is why I don't like the targeting rule because it's it's so subjective. We should have a more defined definition because we're too far into this rule and this whole head to head. Like we're too far into this thing not to have a defined definition. So the targeting ruling that was that was like I thought that was the biggest play of the game. I thought that was the biggest play of the game. And I thought the rest got it right initially, but then it got reversed. And there was clear forcible contact to Marvin to Marvin Harrison Jr.'s head. There was clear forcible contact. 
So I don't know how we we like we remove her away. Like I don't know, but I thought the targeting play was the biggest play of the game, and it really changed. It really changed the the full on outlook of this game, where Ohio State, um, Marvin Harrison Jr. was having his way with Georgia in the first quarter, and then that led to Georgia assessing and committing a lot of resources to prevent. You know, Marvin Harrison from getting too loose. He got he got loose, but they prevented some other resources. They 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 attributed and committed other resources to double cover him and you know send multiple guys his way, which led to Ohio State and the other Ohio State receivers having some favorable one-on-one matchups. Ibuka, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, if I'm correct, he had some really favorable one-on-one matchups on the outside. Ohio State was able to take advantage of that. But then with the with Marvin Harrison Jr., his absence, it then just like, it was like, hey, Georgia just went into, okay, we can just play these guys regularly. We can we don't have to commit so many, like, because at first, Georgia's like, you got to pick your poison. You're, you're either going to double cover and give heavy attention to Marvin Harrison Jr., as you should, or you give, you know, you just you let you go, you let Mar you let Mar Marvin Harrison go one on one. But with you committing so many resources, it gave Ohio State some really favorable matchups. So with no Marvin Harrison Jr., Ohio State, their liabilities came into play, especially with their depth at at, at skill positions such as receiver, and then their secondary issues. They had some big time secondary problems. Because the mere fact that Georgia had nearly 200 yards of passing in the fourth quarter, unacceptable from a secondary of Ohio State. Like, unacceptable. Like, unacceptable. You cannot give up almost 200 yards of passing in, in the fourth quarter. You can't. So those liabilities kind of showed themselves. The, the lack of depth at skill positions and in the secondary. So you look at Georgia. Georgia executed really well in the fourth quarter. They couldn't have played it any better, but I do think there were some move, there were some plays and and some calls that defined this game. But ultimately, Kirby Smart and Kirby Smart even said it. He was like George, he was like, "Oh, I just should have won this game." <laughs> Kirby Smart even said it. But as I said, Georgia, what Kirby Smart is building down there in Georgia, is incredible. It's a it, it, it's it's looking like it's going to be a dynasty. And they're displaying, they display great championship grit. Their execution in the fourth quarter was, was just perfect. And Kirby Smart, like in terms of time management and game management, he outdid Ryan Day. And I'll say this, I thought CJ, like I said, CJ Stroud, he showed the ability to overcome certain situations. And ultimately he played his best collegiate game. And then with Ryan Day, I thought the play calling for the most part, was pretty good. I thought the play calling was pretty good, but I think at times, game management was an issue. Game management was an issue. So that's just how the chips may lay. We have our national championship game settled. It is going to be Georgia versus Ohio State. I mean, damn it. It's going to be Georgia versus TCU. Um. So yeah, that's, that's our matchup, and I'm excited for the matchup, but you look at 
you look at how this game transpired, I do think the fourth quarter looks a bit different if Marvin Harrison is on the field. Um, and, and those touchdowns that Ohio State were getting turned into field goals. So, big. Um, and... I'm a, that's the that's the college football playoff recap, but I know some people are gonna want me. They're gonna want me to talk about USC and their loss, and I'm not. I don't want to be too long on this because it's what I've been talking about. Um, first and foremost, great year to USC. I mean, last year they were a four win team. This year they're eleven win team, and they had a chance to not only win the Pac-12, but to also clinch a playoff berth. So that lets you know the dramatic, the drastic improvement. But their defense was really, really, really bad this year. And early on in the year, I talked about it. This is why early on in the year I said Caleb Williams is the best player in college football. He's the most valuable player in college football. He's the best quarterback in college football. That is what I said. And I also said, hey, no one team depends on no one team depends on no one player more than USC depended on Caleb Williams this year. Facts. That's just a fact. And people were raving about USC and some of the defensive stats that they were like early on in the season. I think at some point uh USC was leading the country in interceptions. They were leading the um they were leading the Pac-12 in sacks and I'm like, okay. This is how I know. Like you, like I mean, you watching the games because their defense is not that good. But Caleb Williams and the offense was so productive and so damn explosive. It it, it that then enabled the defense to play a bit risky, to take more chances, to go for more interceptions, to pin their ears back, and to be able to rush the quarterback effectively. The offense allowed them to do that. So the defense, like, hey, we got Caleb Wood. Like, if we if we get beat, and because we're trying to be risky and take chances, we got Caleb Williams in the offense. We're gonna be fine. And I thought first his Caleb Williams' performance in the Cotton Bowl was absolutely phenomenal, even without uh you know first round a potential first round draft pick and Jordan Addison, and missing Travis Travis Day, um or Travis Die, it he was still absolutely phenomenal so if if there was any question they like oh he has all these really good receivers and pieces like no he like caleb williams is him and he came out the ball but don't you find it interesting that usc all three of their losses look the same like all three of their losses look identical like all of them all of their losses all three of their losses look identical it was there was never a point in the season where you looked at their offense, you looked at Caleb Williams, you're like, damn, he's just not playing well. They're, they're just not playing well. The offense is just not clicking. No, the offense had to be on it every single week. And you look at the first, you look at the first loss at Utah. Utah get a late time, a late score. They win the game. The Pac-12 championship. Utah just ran all over USC's defense. And then you look at this Tulane game where Tulane, they 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 face twice. They were down 14 points twice. They faced two 14-point deficits in this game. And somehow, some way, Tulane was able to make that up 
and come back and win this football game. Lincoln Riley, as much as I praise him and as much as I love him as a coach and as a as brilliant as an offensive mind that he is, he has to find a way to really, really lock in on this defense because this defense, if this defense is just a little bit better, maybe they're in the playoff. But I didn't think they deserved to be in the playoff because ultimately it showed their defense just was not going to be ready. Their defense was just not going to be ready because they, they they were just too vulnerable. And all year, I said it, I said no one, I said no team, no country in the program, and no no country in the program, no team in the country hid and masked their deficiencies better than USC did. And eventually, we knew their deficiency would show because, like, it's defense. You can't stop the run. They can't stop the run. They they turned out they weren't really good versus the pass coming down the stretch of the year. So you just look at it like they tried their best at hitting, at hiding and masking their deficiencies, but eventually it came to bite them. It came back to bite them in the butt. Um, so I don't want, like I said, I didn't want to be too long because it's what I've been talking about. But they've ultimately USC had a great season. Don't like. Let, don't let my defensive criticism blind you and shield you how good of a season they had. They had a damn good year from being a for, going from a four and eight team to a seven win improvement, an eleven win team, playing in the Cotton Bowl, and 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 actually had a chance at the playoff. It's an amazing run. Caleb Williams had a great season. This team had a great season, uh, but they got to get better defensively. They got to lock in defensively. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of this bad boy. Um, I'm going to do, yeah, so this is the last uh, week of the regular season. I'm going to do my top 10 teams list, my top 10 teams to end the regular season. I think I will continue to rank these, my my rank my top teams as the playoffs go on, but this is going to be my final list that I do, final top 10 list that I do. Um for the regular season so you know there's been a bunch of jumbling and back and forth and shuffling of the deck and so forth but here's my top 10 list i'm gonna do it quick because i don't want to hold you guys any longer we discussed we discussed a lot today so here we go at 10 i have the giants um a lot of this is just coaching I, like <laughs> i'm sorry but like a lot of this is just coaching i have loved the job that brian dayball has done I think all throughout the league, there have been some really good coaching jobs that stand out. Um, Brian DeBall is one. Uh, Dan Campbell in Detroit. Doug Peterson in Jacksonville. Um, there's just there's so many I can like. There's a few more that I can just call out that have just been really really good situations, or they weren't looking like great situations. But Brian DeBall, I mean, this Giants roster. I talk about it over the past couple of weeks. They don't have much premium talent. Um, and the fact that he's been able to maximize and I would say even raise this team ceiling to a playoff team, I think it's amazing. I, I think this team, for this team to be a 9-10 to 10 win football team in the postseason, I think it's incredible. Daniel Jones didn't play bad this year. Like, he played decent. He was Daniel Jones was pretty decent this year. He wasn't bad. He wasn't a turnover machine. Um, Saquon Barkley is starting to fulfill some of that praise and some of that hype that, you know, that was given to him coming out of Penn State. We're all kind of seeing it come full circle. There's definitely some holes on this roster. This is not a 
perfect roster, but in terms of its coaching, they play hard. They they know they know their identity. They've been able to have the ability to to win close games. I got the Giants at ten. At nine, I have the Vikings. Um, I got I, I gotta put them here just out of respect that they have won a lot of close games. They have won a number of close games. I want to say 11 of their 12 wins have been by seven points or less. So they can win close games and they have shown the effectiveness and the ability to per, to perform situationally. But I think too often, first, this defense is atrocious. This defense is atrocious. It's very leaky. Um, it's really, it's highly, highly suspect. They're, they're a real finesse team by heart, but I do got to give Kevin O'Connell some, some credit where, you know, he got this team to a 12 win team and they won a lot of close games that they weren't winning last year. So I like the Vikings, they got their issues. I think at times they come out very flat and I think they can be a little soft and a finesse team. But they're at nine. Got to respect it. At eight, I had the Jaguars. T-Law, Trevor Lawrence has been the he's been he's been arguably the best quarterback since Thanksgiving in the NFL. You look at his numbers, you look at what Jacksonville is doing They're on a four game winning streak. I think they're going to win this season finale and they're going to get into the playoffs. And there we go. Trevor Lawrence and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Here we come. Uh, I think this team. They're clicking on cylinders. And like I said, Trevor Lawrence, he's been the best quarterback. You look at his numbers. You look at, you know, how many games he's won since Thanksgiving. He's been the best quarterback, arguably. You can make an argument. He's been the best quarterback since Thanksgiving. He's been playing the position as well as anybody. How about we say that? He's been playing the position as well as anybody since Thanksgiving. Got to respect it. At seven, I had the Chargers. We always knew Justin Herbert in the offense would deliver. We were just waiting on the defense and Brandon Staley. This defense have come along. They have come a long way. It's taken it's taken longer than what I expected, but the defense is getting healthier and they're getting better. 14 sacks in the last three games, and they get Joey Bosa back, one of the premier pass rushers in football. So I look at this Chargers defense. It is getting better and healthier at the right time. Um, and the offense, it's not as explosive as you would like it to be or as you think it would be. But they're getting some guys back healthy as well. They still got some offensive line issues, but Chargers at seven. At six, I have the Cowboys. They're eight and two since Dak Prescott has returned. They have the number one scoring offense since Dak Prescott has returned. They're explosive offensively with Dak under center. We just have our issues about with Dak and the turnovers and interceptions. And then also coaching. Like, can Mike McCarthy manage games better? Can the Cowboys? Can they be better situationally? That is what we're looking for from the Cowboys. Um, they got some there. They got some guys banged up in the secondary and their defense, but I think they have recouped and they'd be healthy enough for the postseason. But the Cowboys, I got this. I got them at six. I think the Cowboys can play better football, but we we have to see if they can get to that level. At five, I got the Bills. They make a lot of mistakes. Um, I think they have more. I think they have. Their weaknesses are bigger than what we thought coming into the season. Overall, they've had a good season. They've had obviously they've had their down, you know, their down stretch. Every team has has run into that. But Buffalo, I think they're dangerous. Um, 
I don't I, like like can they come out the AFC? Yes, I do. I do think they can come out the AFC, but they got some things they need to clean up um if they're going to be able to beat a Kansas City, a Cincinnati. They got some things they got to clean up. They got to show some more consistency um in terms of the running the game, running game and being able to effectively run the ball and close out games in in close tight and tight moments. Bills at 5. At 4, the Eagles. You know, I feel I I feel like they have been the most consistent team this year. That doesn't mean the best, but they have been the most consistent. Now they got last two games, they've had some losses. I thought the Cowboys lost was like, okay, Dallas is pretty good. They got their quarterback, so it's like, okay. But then they lost to New Orleans at home. And granted, I know New Orleans is fighting for their playoff lives, but you expect Philly to be a little bit better than what they what they have been. So I'm looking at the Eagles. Um, they got some critical injuries. Even the Jalen Hurts injury, we all we all know about that. But I look at the Lane Johnson injury. Um, Avante Maddox. They're missing some key vital guys on both sides of the ball. They're getting hurt at the wrong time. But I still think this Philly team is really good. I got the Eagles at four. At three, I have the 49ers. I think the Niners. They are just devastating to play. They are ground and pound. They impose their will physically. Brock Purdy, he seems to be getting a little bit more comfortable um, and a little bit more established, getting his feet wet in this offense under Kyle Shanahan. Um, They're going to get Debo Samuel back healthy for the first playoff game. That's a plus. Their defense is healthy. Their defense had had an iffy performance versus the Raiders, but I think they clean it up. I think the Niners will be ready for the playoffs. I got them at three. I think they're as good as anybody coming out the NFC. At two, I got the Chiefs. Um, Patrick Mahomes is the MVP. Patrick Mahomes is the best player in football. They got some issues in their secondary that need to be cleaned up. I think their passing defense is a bit susceptible. It can that could obviously they can run into some huge problems when facing these AFC quarterbacks like uh, a Joe Burrow, a Josh Allen, dare I say a Justin Herbert. I, they could face some real issues, but once again, they have Mahomes. They have Andy Reid. I like the coach and quarterback combination. I think it's the best in the league. And they're still trying to figure out the receiver thing, but I think it all it all pan itself out. I think Mahomes and Andy Reid, they'll find a way to work around it um, and to have a successful playoff run as, as, you know, as much as they can. At one, I got the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, <clears throat> this team has been on fire these last like the last month and a half or so um they have been on fire even without jamar chase they still won ball games uh i granted lionel collins their right tackle he's out for the season he got hurt but i love the consistency throughout the season that i saw from this offensive line and even with the big time right, right tackle going out and collins they still have some consistency and some continuity in their offensive line. And then most importantly, that doesn't get talked about enough, their defense. I think it don't get talked about enough because they don't have like, they don't have the star studded superstar, notable face worthy, noteworthy, name worthy type of guys. Um, but their defense is a top 10 unit. I like Trey Henderson. I, th- I think Trey Hendrickson is a great pass rusher. I like Jesse Bates. I like their linebacking core. They got some really good players on defense, and collectively as a unit, they are really good. I like Cincinnati. I think they are complete. Um, They can win in a variety of ways, and I thought Cincinnati is 
Cincinnati is what everybody thought the Bills would be this year in terms of being complete, being able to win in a variety of ways, having a having a more fairly consistent and top 10, top end defense. That is what Cincinnati has been. And everybody that Cincinnati is what everybody thought Buffalo would be. So that's my top 10 list going into the NFL playoffs. This is closing out the last week of the regular season. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Peace, deuces. I am gone. Um, always remember two choices, one decision. Enjoy. See you guys.